For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. So we've been studying the origins. We've been studying the beginning of everything. We spent three weeks just working through Genesis 1, and this week we're finally going to finish Genesis 1, I promise. I left us with, on day six, right in the middle of day six, with this verse last week, where God says, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, a, a declaration after which nothing would ever be the same. That was a, this was a pretty big statement for us right here. Let us call into existence humanity. And I'm going I'm to make them in our image, in our likeness. We talked about this some last week. He said they're going to rule over the sky, the sea, the birds, in, the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, the livestock, the wild animals, the creatures that move on the ground. Everything God's just made, he says, here, take good care of it. And so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. The first poem in scripture we see in his own image, in the image of God, twice here. And this is all of humanity. It's not that Guys are made in the image of God and girls aren't. Male and female are both have God's image stamped on them. You know, God is spirit. He doesn't have a body. And so this is one of the really unique features of humanity is we, have, we are physical and spiritual beings. And last week we talked about this some, but one of the points I made was that this is the basis for equality. This is the basis for human rights. And I've got an extensive quote from this author named Nancy Piercy. I'm going to quote from her a couple of times tonight. But she talks about this subject of being made in the image of God and equality. Because if we're just matter, if we're just physical matter, it's hard to, it's hard to see how you can even make a case for human rights, for equality. If we're all just physical, material things. Here's what she says. She says, where did the idea of equal rights come from? Well, the 19th century political thinker, Alexis de Tocqueville, said the idea came from Christianity. The most profound geniuses of Rome and Greece never came up with the idea of equal rights, he wrote. Jesus Christ had to come to earth to make it understood that all members of the human species are naturally alike and equal. The 19th century atheist Friedrich Nietzsche agreed. He says another Christian concept has passed even more deeply into the tissue of modernity. The concept of the equality of souls before God. This concept, he says, furnishes the prototype of all theories of equal rights. We tend to take the concept of equality for granted, yet it was Christianity that overthrew ancient social hierarchies between rich and poor, masters and slaves. That's very true. A few intrepid atheists admit outright that they have to borrow the ideal of human rights from Christianity. Look at this. Richard Rorty, a committed Darwinist, and in the Darwinian struggle for existence, the strong prevail while the weak are left behind. Darwinism really doesn't lend itself too well to equal rights. Survival of the fittest is what Darwinism is. So evolution cannot be the source of universal human rights. Instead, Rorty says, the concept came from, quote, religious claims that human beings are made in the image of God. Verse we just read. He cheerfully admits that he reaches over and borrows the concept of universal rights from Christianity. He even calls himself a freeloading atheist. Look at this. This Jewish and Christian element in our tradition is gratefully invoked by freeloading atheists by myself. So he has a worldview with no basis for equality, and he has to reach over into the worldview that's contradictory to his to get a concept that he likes. 
that he knows to be true, and he cheerfully does it. I call that a worldview that doesn't match reality, a worldview that doesn't work. A worldview is not supposed to explain away reality, it's supposed to explain reality. At the birth of our nation, the American founders deemed it self-evident that human rights must be grounded in God. Not that they were all Christians or anything like that. Deists is more like it. The Declaration of Independence leads off with those bright blazing words. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal and that they are endowed by the Creator with certain unalienable rights. Unfortunately, they meant all white male landowners are created equal. <laughs> it took much longer. We're still working on a full equality. But, it's, but notice what it says. They're endowed by their creator. Now check this out. All right, this is good. In the summer of 2013, a beer company sparked controversy when it released an advertisement for Independence Day that deleted the crucial words by their creator. The commercial said, they are endowed with certain unalienable rights. And the question is, endowed by whom? It's the passive, they switched to the passive verb and they didn't say by whom they're endowed. The advertiser is emblematic of what many secularists do. They borrow ideals like equality and rights from a biblical worldview, but then cut off from their source in the Creator. They are freeloaders. <laughs> Christians should reclaim the noble ideals, making the case that they are logically supported only by a biblical worldview. Atheists often denounce Christianity as harsh and negative, but in reality it offers a much more positive view of the human person than any competing religion or worldview. It's so appealing that adherents of other worldviews keep freeloading the parts they like best. I thought that was well put. And so, created in the image of God, that's the starting point for humans. That's the first thing we learned about humanity. And this notion of the image of God, as we read on in our story here, as we read about these early humans, these early interactions, these early charges from God, we're going to learn a little bit more about what it means to be made in the image of God. We're going to learn about who we were designed to be. And though, even though the world has fallen and the human race has fallen, and we're going to read about that in Genesis 3, and it broke a lot of things. Our relationship with God, it broke us to an extent. And the whole creation is groaning and longing for redemption. There's still traces. We can still see the image of God shining through, even in the midst of fallen humanity. We're going to see it revealed for all it is when we get to heaven. So let's try to note some of these as we go along. He says, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue or govern, it might say in some of our translations. Rule over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, and over every living creature that moves on the ground. That's the first thing he said to these humans in Genesis 1. So God's instruction to the first humans, have lots of kids and fill this good land that I've just made. And secondly... Take good care of my creation. It's unfortunate Christians have used passages like this, I guess, to justify exploitation of God's world that he made. That's the opposite of what we should do. If God creates this awesome place and says, take good care of it, that's not a license to use it, to exploit it. No, we need to take good care of what God has made. The heavens are declaring his glory, Scripture says. And so we see here a God as a kind, powerful, and loving leader. But what has he done? He's charged us with leadership as well. He says, just like I'm a good leader, a servant leader, really, he says, you are also created to lead. 
And so what we need to learn to do is we need to learn to lead like him. Unfortunately, humans have grabbed leadership and put self at the center and my agenda, and it's caused disaster so many times. And uh, it's kind of hard for us to trust leaders today. Uh, politicians especially are noteworthy um, uh, for being distrusted. But what we need to learn, the, the concept of leadership, that's part of, part of the larger category of work that God has designed us to do. And we need to learn to lead like him. We have a longing for this. There will be leadership responsibilities in heaven. We see this in the teaching of Christ. We see this in Paul. They, what, how, how, we, how we serve God in this life will mean positions of responsibility in the next life. And the notion that heaven is this place where we sit around and play the harp all the time, that, that sounds awful. And that's not how God describes heaven. That would be very inconsistent with the very image of God that he implant, imprinted on us. Well, then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth, or land, and every tree that has fruit with seed in it, they will be yours for food. All right, so what does this mean? Does this mean we're all supposed to be vegetarians? That that's really our, our original design? This verse is kind of weird. Um, you know, it doesn't say plants are the only thing they can eat, just that they can eat plants, Right? God's like, you can eat these things. <laughs> They're not just pretty. <laughs> um, one possibility is, you know, the early humans had pretty long lives. So it could mean if you're going to live 900 years, maybe you should stick with the fruits and vegetables. <laughs> I don't know. Um, this could relate to special dietary rules in the garden. There were things that they could and couldn't eat in this garden that he's going to plant for them and, and put them in in Genesis chapter 2 that we're going to read about. So that's possible as well. Uh, he says basically the same thing about the, uh, the animals, the, birds, the beasts of the earth, the birds in the sky, the creatures on the ground, everything that has breath of life in it. I give every green plant for food, and it was so. And God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. Each day it's good, it's good, it's good, and now it's very good. This is a good creation. Now, one thing we need to, to remember, oh, and there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. Now, we need to remember that this sixth day, by the time he pronounces everything very good, and there's male and female, um, all of Genesis 2, 4 through 25 takes place before this sixth day comes to an end. You know, God creates just man, and then he says, this is not good for the man to be alone. And... Um, <clears throat> So it's not until he, he creates woman and, and we, we see him declaring it good at the end of chapter 2. So what we really see in Genesis 2 is sort of a zoom in on the sixth day and we see an expansion of God's creations of humanity because that's such an important event. We'll read that later tonight, at least part of it. And then day 7 in Genesis chapter 2 says, Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. And by the seventh day God had finished the work he'd been doing. And so, on the seventh day, he rested from his work. He was finished, so he rested. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it, he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. All right, so God rested. Why did God rest? Well, it wasn't because he was tired. It was because he was finished. God doesn't get tired. He's not like us. He rested because his work was done. And so now... He's going to enjoy what he had made. He makes something, then he enjoys it. He's going to come down and interact with, uh, with these humans that he's made. 
Now, what is its relevance for us? This whole notion of God resting. Well, there's two things here. One, God wants us to rest sometimes too. You know, we're not like Him. We actually do need to rest. We're physical and spiritual beings. It's not our spirit that gets tired. It's our bodies that get tired. And, you know, we need to rest. And so there's sort of a pattern for us. In fact, later on, He's going to command. He says, like, look, take Saturdays off. Don't do anything. All right? I'm commanding you to take a vacation every week, okay? <laughs> where, you're, you, where you're not going to go out and, and spend a whole other day working. You know, this is a time for our bodies to recover. We need this. Uh, in fact, you know, especially for them, but also for us, it's a time to trust Him. I mean, imagine living in an ancient society where you just feel like you're just scraping by. You feel like you're on the brink of starvation. The thought of taking a whole day off, that would sound crazy. And yet, God commanded it, and so they did it sometimes, I guess, when they were listening to him. But this really is an act of trust. Um, It's a time to remember the difference between me and God, that he's the infinite, the all-powerful one, and I'm not. It's a time for us to stop and enjoy God's good gifts. You know, the ancient Israelites actually had a commandment. They, They were not allowed to work on the Sabbath. That's our Saturday. You know, that, that Sabbath commandment is set aside in the New Testament, and yet um, we, need, we need to have some time built into our lives to stop. I think it's good to have a block of time each week set aside where it's like, I'm just not going to do anything. I'm going to do something that's actually recharging. And I found people that never rest end up sort of kind of resting all the time, but it's not really restful. Uh, too much rest is a bad thing as well. And we'll talk about work again here a little bit later. But it's a time to stop and enjoy God's good gifts. We remember our, our smallness. Uh, we acknowledge Him. We, we, we stop and try to we enjoy the things He's given us. But, so, this rest of God here, then also we'll see as we project this out over the whole Scriptures, it points to an even greater rest. An even greater rest. First of all, the rest of salvation. You know, what, what Jesus said as he hung on the cross, as he came down to the end, he, he cried out, it is finished. The finished work of Christ says that even though I've turned away from God, and I'm guilty, that he has paid for sin. And if I'll just invite him to take my place, to pay my penalty, to send his spirit into me, then I can rest not on what I've done, but on what he's done. And religion is all about, I've got to do, 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 do to be right before the God or the gods or whatever. And Christianity is about what's, what's been done, what God has done for you. And so we rest in that because his work is finished. What's interesting is that it's not just being made right with God, but... Our spiritual growth is also dependent upon us learning to rest. Hebrews chapter 4 says there is a special rest still waiting for the people of God. So let us do our best to enter that rest. We talked about this in our Hebrew series. There's these images Jesus talks about with spiritual growth. He says, you know, it's like a vine and its branches. You guys are the branches. You just got to remain in the vine. He says, come, come to me. All who are weary, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, and you'll get rest. That's that's contradictory images. The yoke is the big heavy thing they put on the oxen's neck to pull the the plow. 
And Jesus says, walking with me is rest and pulling a yoke. And so there's a rest we need to learn that trusts God, not just for our salvation, but also trusts Him for our spiritual growth. Andrew Murray, he says, there, there are two stages in the Christian life. The one in which after conversion, becoming a Christian, a believer seeks to work what God would have him do. And then there's a second in which after many a painful failure, he ceases from his works and enters the rest of God, there to find the power for work and allowing God to work in him. And so you can see that it may take some time to learn this. After many a painful failure, are you failing a lot in your, in your walk right now? According to this, you might be heading in the right direction. Maybe God is trying to teach you. He's trying to raise your need level. He's trying to teach you how to rest in Him. It's a very deep truth. I highly recommend it. I've been rereading this book called The Green Letters lately. So good. So good. I, I've really benefited from it. And a lot of what it talks about are these deeper truths about spiritual growth. Anyway, Sabbath. We see, it, we see all these very important theological concepts right there in the first chapter or two or three of Scripture. It's in seed form, and we see that just it develops throughout the rest of the Bible. Genesis chapter 2. This is the account of. We're going to see that phrase many times in the book of Genesis. That's how it launches a new section. These are the generations of, or this is the account of, the heavens and the earth when they were created. When the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. So we see the perspective shifts a little bit here. It's the heavens and the earth in chapter 1. In chapter 2, it's the earth and the heavens. We're coming down in close. We also see a new name for God. This is the name Yahweh Elohim, kind of actually a rare construction. Elohim was the name for God in Genesis 1. Yahweh is God's personal name. We... we some people say, well, there's two conflicting creation accounts. In Genesis 1, they thought he was Elohim. In 2, they thought he was Yahweh. Later, they stuck Elohim in there because they saw it was in 1, and they, they, they just clumsily pieced these together. No, that's not what it is. What we see is Elohim, the cosmic creator, and then we see Yahweh, the one who moves down in and makes, makes covenants, makes promises, with, to, relates personally with humans. We see the personal aspect of God here. So it's not two conflicting creation accounts. Yahweh's God's personal name. The name he cho he's chosen for himself. How he's revealed himself. It's related to the verb for I am. All right, so the, the very concept of I amness is bound up in his name. And so, what, whereas Genesis 1, we had the camera kind of panning out and you know, showing the whole thing in Genesis, in Genesis 2, we zoom in on day 6 and we see creation of humans. It says, now, no shrub had yet appeared on the earth or in the land. Earth can mean the whole thing or it can mean an area. And I think actually Genesis 2 is actually using land in more of these probably local terminology. So Genesis 2 opens with this land, barren, no shrubs, no plants, the Lord God hadn't sent rain on the earth and there was no one to work the ground. And so when the scene opens, 
It was, uh, it's a very dry area. There's actually a lot of parts of the Middle East are this way. It'll go months and months at a time without raining. Some places it'll go practically a whole year without raining. So it's a dry land. It's a land that if you were going to grow stuff in it, you would need humans to irrigate it, right? You'd need humans to bring water to where it needed to go. It's not going to get rained on. At least not, not at this point. Streams or some kind of water would come up from the earth and water the whole surface of the ground. I, I don't know if that's some sort of a river that would flood or maybe just some sort of a dew. I, I don't know. But it says it's in this place that the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground. And then he takes this physical being and it says he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. Breath, wind, and spirit, they're all the same word in Hebrew. And the man became a living being. One of the unique features of humans made in the image of God is that we are not just physical beings. We are also spiritual beings. There's a part of us that is simply not physical. And somehow God took the physical matter and the spiritual element and he, he fused them into one. And that's who you are. Body and soul. You're going to be a physical, spiritual being for all eternity. There, there's going to be a short time where you don't have a body, I think, it seems. The period between when you die and when Jesus comes back and you get your new body. But even there, we might have a loner body. It's possible. It's like when you go to the restaurant, you don't have a tie, and they give you a jacket and tie. Uh... Yeah, we think I'm a body that has a soul or I'm a soul that has a body and really neither of those are correct. We are body and soul. And this is where the, the soul was infused into the physical body. And, and um, you know, under naturalism, it says humans are just material beings. There's no basis for any sort of supernatural component to humans. But Scripture says we have a spiritual dimension. And I think this explains what we know to be true. It's a worldview that explains what we know to be true. I'm going to give you Nancy Piercy again. In this part of her book, she's quoting from this Professor Rodney Brooks, Professor Emeritus at MIT, real sharp guy, his book called Flesh and Machines. And here's, here's what she quotes from his book. She says, Brooks writes that a human being is nothing but a machine. Flesh and machines, right? We are machines. A big bag of skin full of biomolecules. It's a nice, catchy, be alliterative phrase. Interacting by the laws of physics and chemistry. In ordinary life, of course, it is difficult to actually see people that way. That's not how I think of myself or the people that I know. I think of them as personal beings. But he says, you know, when I look at my children, I can, when I force myself... I can see that they're machines. So he's like, if I really apply my theorems to my kids, I can believe that they are big bags of skin full of biomolecules and nothing more. Is that how he treats them, though? 
Of course not. He says, that is not how I treat them. <laughs> I interact with them on an entirely different level. They have my unconditional love, he says, the furthest one might be able to get from rational analysis. How does he reconcile such a heart-wrenching cognitive dissonance where your mind says one thing, but everything else about you says another? The answer is, he doesn't. Brooks ends by saying, I maintain two sets of inconsistent beliefs. The one that I publish in the peer-reviewed journals and sell books about. The other one is the one that lets me love my kids. The one that I know is true. He's given up on any attempt to reconcile his theory with his experience. He's abandoned all hope for a unified, logically consistent worldview. He has no defense. And this is the tragedy of the postmodern age. The things that matter most in life, that are necessary for humane society, ideals like moral freedom, human dignity, even loving our own children, have been reduced to nothing but useful fictions. Is that all love is? Is that all humans are? Is it a useful fiction we tell ourselves until we turn back into dust? Or are we something more than that? The man became a living being, it says. And now the Lord God planted a garden in the east in Eden. So wherever the guy is, God plants a garden somewhere. And it's, it's not the garden of Eden. The garden is not called Eden. He said, apparently back then they had a land called Eden. And he planted a garden there in the east. The east part of Eden? I don't know. Is Eden east of where he's writing from? doesn't say. But he plants a garden there. And then he put the man there that he had formed. So he takes the guy and he puts him in this garden. That's looking a lot better than that previous place he was. Adam saw, it looks like before he got to the garden in Eden, it looks like he saw life outside the garden just for a little bit. He would have appreciated the beauty and the glory of this place that God made for him. I can't imagine what this garden would have been like when God plants a garden. I mean, I've seen some pretty cool human gardens. You think about the, uh, the conservatory downtown or whatever it is, just, you know, greenhouses full of all kinds of cool plants, the desert room, the tropical room, the butterfly room, the blown glass room. <laughs> It was probably pretty cool. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. All these trees were pleasing to the eye and good for food. Remember that when we get to Genesis chapter 3. And in the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I'm not going to say too much about these this week. I will say, well, he'll come back to these. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden. From there, it was separated into four headwaters. So is it four waters flowing into the garden? Is it the waters are watering it and coming out? The name of the first is the Pishon. It winds through the whole land of Havilah where there's gold. And the gold of that land is good. 
It's not like that, you know, bad gold. <laughs> it's not fool's gold. <laughs> uh, by the way, aromatic resin and onyx are also there. It's probably pretty good, too. It doesn't say, though. <laughs> aromatic resin, uh, bedellium is how that's often translated. We don't really know what that is. Bedellium. So the Pishon, what is the Pishon? Where is Havilah? We don't know. These are places that, these are names they had that haven't translated over to today. James Hoffmeyer, though, says this. He says, the idea that a river once flowed across the deserts of Arabia possibly was associated with the Arabian Peninsula, and that it's somehow connected with the Tigris and or Euphrates River seems far-fetched. But this all changed when evidence for such a river came from satellite radar images taken during the 1994 mission of the Space Shuttle Endeavour. Boston University geologist Farouk Al-Baz, who studied the images, noticed that traces of a defunct river that crossed northern Arabia from west to east were visible beneath the sands, thanks to the ground-penetrating capabilities of the radar technologies. Yeah, so what they found was something like this, okay? There's the Persian Gulf on the right, there's Kuwait is where it ends. Um, this is um, <clears throat> just south of modern-day Palestine, just kind of south and, and west of Iraq and Iran. Hoffmeyer says he called this the Kuwait River, for that's where it apparently connected with the Euphrates or emptied into the Persian Gulf. Some scholars have proposed this is the Pishon River of Genesis 2. Environmental studies in the region suggest this river probably dried up sometime between 3500 and 2000 BC when an arid period was experienced. Yeah, that's the hard part with, with um, geology from this long ago. It could have changed a lot since then. Uh, but um, it names four rivers. The name of the second river is the Gihon. We don't really know what that is either. It winds the entire land of Cush. Now, Cush is often identified with Ethiopia in Scripture, but in Genesis 10, it also links it with Iraq. So, you know, people, there was some migration of people, maybe people moved around that were more associated with the name. So this could be east of the Tigris and the Euphrates, or it could be down in, like, Egypt area, Egypt and Ethiopia. The name of the third river is the Tigris. It runs along the east side of Ashur. We know the Tigris. And the fourth river is the Euphrates, and we also know the Euphrates, at least where it is today. And so if you try to stick these on a map, Tigris and Euphrates, we know. The Pishon could be there. That's possible. The Gihon, who knows? Maybe that was what they called the Nile way back then. Um, th these rivers, don't, they don't connect today, but they might have back then. The, the point is that these are not symbolic figurative rivers because they're naming them and they're naming the places, but we also can't really identify exactly where these met and where the, the garden in Eden was today. And the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And so we see, again, they're ruling over, they're governing the world God has made. He puts him in this garden. He says, garden it. Take care of this garden. Shaping it, cultivating it, transplanting it, splitting things out that need split and planting them where they need to be. Maybe there were bonsai trees in there. <laughs> were there weeds? I don't know. Probably. Although when God plants a garden, maybe he puts down that weed barrier, you know? <laughs> 
which does not work, by the way. Do not use that stuff. <laughs> work, though, from the beginning of Scripture, we see God working, right? And as beings made in His image, we should enjoy also work and creative accomplishment. Work and creative accomplishment. You know, work is not a result of the fall. It's not like we have to work now because we've, you know, the world is a fallen place. No, we had, work got harder as a result of the fall. It got less cooperative as a result of a world with sin and evil and death. But work was there before the fall. And, um, you know, we should, we should learn to enjoy working hard. It could be simple tasks. It could be complex tasks. I just made a short list of things I like to do. Like weeding. You ever weed a garden that's full of weeds and then you get, back, you, you get done and you're like, whoa, that looks good. I've been doing a lot of weeding lately. <laughs> cleaning. Do you enjoy cleaning? <laughs> you know, like, I feel like a nice clean counter and a, a sink that's empty of dishes and the dishwasher's running, that's, that's kind of a glorious sight, don't you think? <laughs> You don't appreciate that. There might be something wrong with you. <laughs> it takes so little time and you get done and you're like, yes, I have subdued the countertop. <laughs> I like building things. I've been building a lot. I like, I've kind of learned how to build stuff over the years. I've built small things, big things, bookshelves. Uh, I've built a deck. I've built a roof over the deck. It's, it's super enjoyable to build something that works. Fixing things. You, something's broken, you fix it. And you feel kind of good about that. There's sort of a little jolt you get from that. Problem solving of, of, of all sorts. That's kind of a cool mental, mental work analysis. Uh, drawing. I kind of like that. I, my kids like to draw, and so sometimes I'll draw these little stick figure things with them and these pictures, and I get done. I'm like, oh, that's kind of cool. <laughs> Programming. I used to be a computer programmer. I really enjoyed just, if you're, if you're a computer programmer, you know, just writing just nice, elegant, efficient code, <laughs> well commented. It's beautiful. Satisfying. Communicating. Um, you know, thinking through how to communicate something and doing it in such a way that people can understand. I really like doing that. Organizing things, planning things, studying, writing things. These are just a small list of things I like to do that, that give me satisfaction. And you probably got your own list of things. And the reason we enjoy work, the reason we enjoy accomplishment is because we're created in God's image. And God, and obviously, is a creative God who enjoys work enjoys creative artistic expression would fall under this as well you know working a garden is not just you know there, there's an artistic element to it often we need to learn to work hard but not expect ultimate fulfillment from it. some people they worship work and they they're workaholics and they just work 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 and they think that that's what's going to make me happy and that's where they try to derive their significance work is not for you to, to get ultimate significance Work is good, but God needs to be at the center. And so laziness is bad. Um, this is why, you know, I was, I was talking to a friend of mine who's unemployed right now. 
And I was like, so what's it like to be unemployed? And he's like, it's awful. He's like, every day that goes by, I just want a job that much worse. People are like, wow, that must be nice to have all that time on your hands. And he's like, actually, no, it's not. Uh, when you don't have anything to do, you feel more exhausted than when you do have something to do. You ever, uh, you ever been unemployed or talked to the unemployed person? They're like, hey, can you do uh, such and such tomorrow? And they're like, oh, no, man, um, I got to hang out tomorrow with somebody. And you're like, about the other 22 hours. <laughs> Uh, I got an interview. Really? Okay. <laughs> so that leaves only 22 hours of tomorrow. <laughs> but, you know, you just, you feel more tired when you don't have anything to do. And uh, it's not a good, laziness is not a, it's not a sign of health. It's not a good sign. Uh, when it's time to clean up, you're like, okay, guys, time to clean up. And then certain people just disappear. That is sin. <laughs> You're rebelling against the image of God made in you. You'd be a lot happier if you learned not just work, but to initiate. And so rest and work, we need both of these, right? We talked about rest, we talked about work, both are important. All of one or all the other is bad. The rest you take should make you want to get back to the job at hand. And the work you do will then make your rest safe and refreshing. We need to learn to work for God, too. Jesus talks about, he says, I've glorified you by doing the work you gave me to do. This is, this is really where you're going to get a deeper satisfaction. Your job may or may not be satisfying. But what we can find is a deep satisfaction in doing the work of the Lord, serving Him. And there's a, whole, a lot of us here are into that. If you're, if you're looking to get into that, just talk to somebody else here. They probably have some ideas for you. And there will be plenty of work to do in heaven. Not sitting around strumming the harp. Not just singing through the hymn book and then starting over at the beginning and singing through the hymn book again. No, that would be boring. It would be a place of work. And he says, And the Lord God commanded the man, You're free to eat from any tree in the garden. But you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. He gave humans, he gave man a choice. He said, you could do anything you want, just not that one. And it's not that God is against knowledge. He's not trying to keep them from knowing anything. What he's trying to keep him from doing is setting himself up as the ultimate moral judge. He's giving, he's giving man a choice. Do you want to be in this relationship or not? Relationship with God is not a place where we're locked in and we couldn't get out even if we wanted to. This tree represented a constant choice either to obey or not. And this principle that sin brings death is the principle that's going to run right throughout the Bible. God is not trying to keep you from something good by His, com His commands not to do this or that. He's trying to keep you from harming yourself. And maybe He's trying to keep you from killing yourself. He doesn't want you to die. Well, we see some things here. A little more about the image of God. God is a God who makes choices. God chose to do this. He chose to do that. And as part of humans in the image of God, we have the power of free will choice. 
Deep down, we know we have free will, and yet without God, it's hard to explain how free will is possible. If we are just big bags of biomolecules, if we are just chemical reactions, then we do not have a basis for choice in any sense of the term. I'll give you one more Piercy quote here. She says, even the great Albert Einstein was caught in the same dilemma. He says, on the one hand, human beings in their thinking, feeling, and acting are not free, but are as causally bound as the stars in their motions. You know, Mars doesn't decide how it's going to orbit this year. It's, it's working under very specific physical laws. And that's how humans are, he says. Yet on the other hand, he said, I'm compelled to act as if free will existed. Because if I want to live in a civilized society, I must act responsibly. So his, his worldview says one thing, and yet what he knows to be true says the opposite. And so he's maintaining two sets of inconsistent beliefs. She cites Marvin Minsky of MIT, best known for his pithy phrase that the human brain is nothing but a three-pound computer made of meat. Obviously, computers don't have the power of choice. The implication is, neither do humans. Surprisingly, however, Minsky then asks, does that mean we must embrace the modern scientific view and put aside the ancient myth of voluntary choice? See what he calls it, the ancient myth of choice? No, we can't do that, he says. Why not? Minsky goes on, no matter that the physical world provides no room for freedom of will, that concept is essential to our mo models of the mental realm. We cannot ever give it up. We're virtually forced to maintain that belief even though we know it's false. False, she says, that is according to Minsky's materialist worldview. Not according to the Christian worldview. We've got free choice because we have not just the physical, but we have the spiritual, the non-material that stands behind the physical, the mind behind the brain is another way of putting it. And not only does God give us free will, he holds us morally responsible for our choices. That there is such a thing as right and wrong. Free will is required for that. And we know there's such a thing as right and wrong even though we don't know why. This sense is there with everybody. C.S. Lewis he says, everybody's heard people arguing. Sometimes it sounds funny and sometimes it sounds merely unpleasant, but however it sounds, I believe we can learn something very important from listening to the kind of things they say. They say things like this. How'd you like if anyone did the same to you? Oh, that's my seat. I was there first. Hey, leave him alone. He isn't doing you any harm. Uh, why shouldn't you shove in first? Oh, come on, give me a bit of your orange. I gave you a bit of mine. <laughs> come on, you promised. Now, what interests me about all these remarks is the man who makes them is not merely saying the other man's behavior does not happen to please him. No, he's appealing to some kind of standard of behavior which he expects the other man to know about. And the other man very seldom replies, to hell with your standard. <laughs> he says, look, he says, when I was an atheist, my argument against God was the universe seemed so cruel and unjust. Maybe that's an objection some of you have. How could God allow so much evil? 
but how did I get this idea of just and unjust? A man doesn't call a line crooked unless he has some idea of a straight line. What was I comparing this universe with when I called it unjust? Good question. What standard are you comparing the universe with when you make your objections that how could God allow a universe with evil? The problem of evil, maybe the biggest complaint, objection that people throw up against God. Where do you even get the notion of evil? What are you comparing it to? The whole concept is rooted in an external measuring stick, something that stands outside of the created world. In a materialist world, with cause and effect, what is, is. What happens, happens. There's no ought, there's no what should have happened, there's no right and wrong. There's just is. But if we're going to talk right and wrong, then all of a sudden we've got another, another level here. We've, we're talking about a supernatural component. A supernatural standard, one that stands outside the natural world. Well, this sad statement here, when you eat from it, you will certainly die. What a sad warning, not heeded by our first ancestors, Adam and Eve. You know, when we get to heaven, it does look like we'll still have free will, but apparently we'll never misuse it again. It doesn't look like heaven takes away our free will. No. It looks like we've got it, but we will always use it rightly. Why? Because we're going to understand this grave truth right here that sin brings death. We're going to have known firsthand the tears that you shed when that loved one died. Living in a world with a body racked with pain, racked with sin, suffering through chronic illness, wishing with all your, your heart and soul that you could stop this, but unable to do anything about it, ultimately. We're going to know that firsthand. We're going to know what it's like to live in a world where we've thrown off God's leadership, where the news is so depressing sometimes you can't even listen to it. And you wonder, when is this going to stop? But we'll also know firsthand the love that God demonstrated on the cross. And when we ask about the problem of evil, God says, look at the cross. He says, I warned you that sin brings death. And when you turned away from me, I didn't just leave you. The consequences of that trespass, but I sent my son into this world. And I died on the cross for you. Because I love you. In the universe to come, we're going to testify. We're going to be in a unique position as what looks like the only created beings in the image of God that have thrown off his, his leadership and been redeemed by him when he became one of us. We're going to get to talk about what that's like. And it looks like this, this is going to safeguard freedom for all of eternity. Yeah, what we read here in your word, it just explains so well so many aspects of what we know to be true about being human, things that we know are true, but we don't know why they're true, Lord. We, we see the answers right here in your word. Thank you that we don't have to hold two logically inconsistent worldviews, one in our minds and one with the rest of our being, but that we can live a, a unified life. Thank you for the significance you've given us, Lord. Thank you for the appreciation 
um, you, you give us through your word of that. Thank you that we can work. Thank you that we can rest. Thank you that we can choose and that we're moral agents, we're relational beings. God, thank you for all that you've made us, and, and I pray that we would, we would take these, um, these tremendous gifts you've given us and, and glorify you with them and give them right back to you, Lord. I pray, too, for anybody who hasn't, has never received Jesus, that they would heed that warning that sin leads to death, but they would also receive that free gift of eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. This study was recorded at Zenos Christian Fellowship and is copyrighted. You may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it.